Hey, welcome back to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. I'm wicked grateful that you tuned in. Hey, if you're a loyal listener and you like to support independent creators, please support Studs over at patreon.com slash studs. i link to it for you in the show notes. Hey, I promise to keep Studs free for you. And I ain't going to pressure you to drop your hard-earned bucks on my podcast project. But if you dig studs, and if you want to do your part to keep it going, well, I offer some pretty, pretty, pretty cool rewards for studs patrons, all right? So check it out. It's patreon.com slash studs. And yo, we got a new patron. Got a new patron. Want to give a little shout out? Elijah Jackson, Philadelphia, PA, born and raised. I don't know if Elijah was born and raised in Philly, but how can you not say that? Yo, Elijah, thank you so much for supporting what I'm trying to do here. It means a lot to me, and thanks for your note. Super sweet, super kind. I like you too. (laughs) Uh, I also want to give a little shout out I probably should have done this before. My my wife's cousin out in Iowa, I totally cold called her when I was nervously kind of planning this podcast. And she's just this like bright, young, innovative person, like totally cool energy. Anyway, I cold called her and I'm like, hey, you design things, you think about how things are supposed to look, and I don't understand that stuff at all. Can you talk to me a little bit? And she did. Her name's Liv Hunt. She did all the design stuff for studs. And Liv, I have no idea if you listen to this, but thank you for walking me through the aesthetics of the whole project here. You were super supportive, and I'm super grateful. And I have this suspicion that in like 5 or 10 or 20 years, your name's going to come up because you're going to be all famous and shit. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, she she did the logo for a podcast that I did in the 20s. Anyway, you should be famous if that's what you want. I don't know. Thank you. I'm just trying to say thank you. Live Hunt in Iowa. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for your support of the podcast. And yo, if you're not a world-class designer like Liv, and you're not in a financial position to patronize the podcast, I get it. We're good. Totally good. But it would mean the world to me if you could just tell a pal or two about this podcast. Pick an episode that you love and twist their arm a little bit and harass and harangue them until they listen. That's all I'm asking you to do is just harass and harangue the people you love. Is that too much to ask? Ah, look, you don't have to. It's all good. But you do have to gear up for this one. Because 
This conversation is with Eric Lindberg. Eric is a comedian and a mentalist who's been a mainstay in the Chicago comedy scene since the Coolidge administration. He talks about comedy as teamwork, working for the audience, giving the audience a release and a reprieve from the day-to-day And he walks us along the meteoric rise and the agonizing fall of his high-risk, high-reward gamble as a mentalist. Yo, Eric drops the straight dope about life as a comedy veteran. He shoots straight about how he negotiates with the wolf at his door. And I learn a lot, and we have a blast. You will too. Trust me. So join me in conversation with the real OG and the Gallagher Three of the Chi-Town improv scene, Eric Lindbergh. Eric Lindbergh, welcome to Studs. It is a bona fide pleasure to have you. How do you describe what you do? How do I describe? Well, first of all, Dan, thank you so much for, for having me. It is an honor uh, and, and goddamn inconvenience, frankly, <laughs> to be here with you. But, uh, but, but, uh, so I would describe what I do, uh, as an improvisational comedian slash, uh, a, a sometimes comedy mentalist and writer as well. A sometimes comedy mentalist and improv dude and a writer. That's right. You cut your teeth in improv. You've been in the Chicago improv scene for a couple decades. I have to ask, like improv is by its very nature, improvised. So can you talk a little bit about like what you do to work, to prepare, and to train to improvise well? I imagine, though I do not know, that it is very similar to what a professional athlete does to uh, be good at their job, and that is practice, practice, rehearse, build a camaraderie with a, with a group or a team or sometimes an individual um, and understand what they're going to do, how they're going to do it. Uh, it. There's a game plan, but there's not rehearsal, just like there's no rehearsal for tomorrow's uh, uh, big game. Is that why they call it comedy sports? Like one of the early improv outfits was called comedy sports. Was that analogy sort of in mind? In, in a way, I'm an ensemble member at Comedy Sports Act, as much as you can be one in, in this month. And yes, so that actually took the idea of like the whose line is it anyway, short for the, so the short form improv, there's long form improv, short form improv is usually three to four minutes. And there are a lot of audience suggestions. So it took that whose line is anyway idea, actually whose line is it anyway, kind of stole Comedy Sports' idea and said, we're going to make two teams, we're going to make it a sporting event and the audience will actually have some stakes into who wins. So it, it's a it's a fake competition, but people like me who are very competitive and yet terrible at competing <laughs> want to win every night. We want to beat the other team. And if the audience doesn't walk out saying you got robbed or we're so glad you won, we didn't do our job. So, yes, that's where that particular outfit came from. But in general, the tenets of improvisation are not based in competition. They are based on support and never negating anybody. And the concept of yes and, which is something you may or may not be familiar with, which is, um, you know, if you say one thing, I say yes and and build upon that thing, uh, as opposed to, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this because then nothing happens in the scene. No, nobody goes anywhere and it's boring as hell to watch. And then if you get very good at it, you can create a 30 minute piece, a 45 minute piece where characters come back, where it has the same 
the same elements of a great play or great literature or great movie or great novel or their subtext. And when you backtrack it, you see, hey, we've actually created a narrative of actual people actually speaking in front of one another. Um, but the problem is, early on, they don't pay you anything to do it. <laughs> so you get really good at it. I mean, I think before I got paid, I'd probably done... I'm gonna I'm gonna say 1,000 shows before I actually got a check for uh, performing improvisational comedy. Hmm. I want to dive into something you said about you know building a team. You have a lot of really funny people, sure, and most of them are used to being the funniest person in the room, and then they show up at a place like the Improv or at Comedy Sports, and now all of a sudden their job is to not just be the funniest person in the room, but to really be a team player. Can you kind of walk me through like the work it takes to create that team that you're discussing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it all starts with when you decide to do improvisation, you, you usually take a class. I took a class and you can, if he wants to talk about it, I know you're going to have Richard Schwartz on this. He and I took a second city class at second city Northwest It is no longer there when we were uh, juniors in high school. Our teacher, my hand to God, was Stephen Colbert. And we were just terrible. I mean, we, you know, we didn't. So you show up and they kind of give you the very basics. And then if you choose to go on, which I did go on, but I didn't really learn anything about improvisation until I came to Chicago and studied at a place which is called the Improv Olympic. It's now called IO, it's now called nothing. It's no longer, <laughs> it just closed. Uh, but it was, it was the mecca of improvisation. People show up who are, you know, the, the funny guy in the office and they're either great or terrible and they sort of get weeded out as you go from like level one to level five and then eventually get put on a team where you perform from an audience. Now, not to toot my own horn, I was put on a team four weeks into level one, which was unheard of at the time. Um, so I got, I was going through classes and performing at the same time. And I was one of the few people that was doing that so it gave me, it just, I had so many reps, so many at bats with so many different types of personalities and people. And, and if you're a great improviser, like you're absolutely greatest. There's a guy named Miles Stroth who used to do something who said, anybody can be funny, come up on stage with me. We're going to do a scene together. But the only rule is you can never have been on a stage before. You can never have been in front of an audience. Perform. And sure enough, all he would do is let them talk and respond honestly. And it always killed he always made them seem to be the star. So you learn how to improvise with anybody, but you get really good by improvising with people that you gel with. There's no secret sauce. There's talent. And um, I was listening to your friend Leibowitz on, on the on Martin Scorsese thing the other day, and she says talent is that one thing that cannot be learned. It cannot be inherited. It's sort of sprinkled throughout the world randomly. And so if you if you get enough people to have that talent for whatever this stupid make them up thing we're doing is, which is, you know, we're perfecting the art of making shit up. Yeah. To me, yeah, yeah. it was never that hard. It's hard now. It's much harder now. I, I pr I'd probably be awful compared to where I was when I was like 23. But um, my point being that I can still understand enough to know, okay, I'm driving the scene or I'm the passenger in the scene. I'm the captain or I'm the crew of this particular show we're doing. And then those roles are sort of assigned subconsciously without any, without anybody talking about it just naturally happens. There are, there are two guys, TJ Jagodowski and, uh, and Dave Pasquese. They do a show that is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. I swear to you, any show you went any given day, you would say bullshit. They wrote this. They spent years writing this and they make it up and they never do it again. And there are dozens of other shows in the city of Chicago where you can throw a rock and hit 15 improv theaters that you will have a similar experience if you're lucky on a on a given night. 
There are only so many where you know it's a home run every night. I don't know if that answers your question. It, it gives a lot of insight into the question. I guess to follow up a little bit, I'm curious about what the at-bats look like. I'm curious about what practice looks like in preparing to maximize the potential of a stage show on a given night. It looks like a, I would imagine how shagging fly balls or kicking field goals uh, before the game looks like. It's do it over and over and over and over again. You're exercising the same muscle. You're just not performing the same task. Can you be super specific about that and just give like one example of like the functional equivalent of shagging a fly ball? Okay, so there's a game in comedy sports called New Choice. And it works like this. Two people begin a scene. During the course of the scene, the referee blows the whistle and they say new choice. And the player must make a totally different choice. So it might be like, I got to go. I'm late for my uh, physics exam. New choice. I got to go. I got to pick up the kids from school. New choice. I got to go. There's a plane's about to crash. That sort of thing. The idea is, okay, so then the next player must justify that and heighten it until they are asked to do a new choice. So that game is a three-minute game. If you're lucky, you go out on a big laugh, the referee blows the whistles, the lights go out. You just do that 15 times in a row. You play that game 15 times in a row, watching each other, you know, swapping out the players, and then taking two minutes to kind of put it up on blocks. What did we learn? What, what worked? What didn't? Great. On we go. Because it's not like you're going to repeat it, so there's not a whole lot of value in really going, now if you had said this and you'd done that, and it, but there is a value in saying what went right and what went wrong very quickly. Hmm. And that is what it would look like. So over the course of an hour, you, you, you do that game 15, 16 times, and everybody has learned it, everybody knows it, and then the idea being you put it in the show that night. And people are constantly coming in with different ideas and different games that were essentially nothing but constructs for what are the basics of improvisation, which are yes and, don't deny, move things forward, don't go backward, and learn to do it right before you can do it wrong. You know, you can break the rules if you know the rules and you're good at the rules. Hmm. It sounds to me like there's a lot of trust that's required. It sounds to me like there's a lot of vulnerability required. And tell me if you think I'm on to something. It sounds to me like one really needs to somehow negotiate their ego in order to make the band jam. Is there truth to any of those suppositions? There's truth to every single one of those words. I mean, it's almost as if you read Truth in Comedy, the uh, Sharna Halpern, uh, Del Close book that I don't recommend you read. Uh, but that, but that, that said, it, it is. You have to check your ego out the door. You have to say you can't really judge anything about yourself or fuck him, look at me. Look what I'm doing. I'm funnier than that person. You have to remove all of that to do it right. But the problem is uh, you reach a point where you're so fucking good at it that you're like god damn it i'm funny and i'm gonna sell out my fellow players for a joke or a laugh which might destroy but then completely invalidate what your ensemble is doing behind you okay well, and that damn it eric you yeah. you are funny and so one thing i really would love to hear you talk about is how over the course of your years doing it you've managed to negotiate your ego such to be able to empower others and to create space for them. Can you walk me along? Oh, really quick. Can you walk me along that path and maybe stop at some of the highlights in like Eric Lindbergh ego check history? I could try. Um, <laughs> so you know, at the at the beginning of this, it's funny. You said I want to honor what you do, and I have very little 
honor for how I do what I do. Like I, I guess I'm my, my worst critic. I guess I'm, I think I'm terrible. I think I'm occasionally brilliant, but for the most part terrible. I know that's not true. However, what I, when I learned the most and when I realized at my cockiest, when I was making money doing this and enough money to like pay the rent and still have money left over for, you know, weed, um, <laughs> I was, you know, I was also teaching it. The moment I went from performer to teacher of it, that is the time where I felt that I'd actually kind of broken through and realized, okay, you know, it's like, who was teaching who? Were they teaching me? Was I teaching them? They were absolutely teaching me. I learned more from my improv classes than I, I guarantee you a single student learned from it. <laughs> uh, I think if you pulled them, they'd say the same thing. Um, so I think that is a milestone because I didn't really want to do it because it's three hours, it's in the morning and it doesn't pay all that much and people suck and you got to watch it. And the second I said yes, and they've been hounding me to do it for a while. The second I said yes and showed up um, and the first class, I was like, okay, I get it. This is what, this is great. Now I probably wouldn't teach improv at gunpoint, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> but that was when I was happiest when I was either, or coaching. Sometimes you would coach like one of the groups, you know, the, the teams I alluded to earlier were always coached. They call it coaching. I, I, I don't know, not directing. I guess that is an applicable term. I coached a team as well, and that team was great. And I would I would uh, be up on lights. You take notes. You bring the lights down at the after the end of the thirty minute piece. And nice. And my hair would stand on end. My you know, I'd be up. I'd be tears would be flowing from my eyes. I'd be laughing harder than anyone to the point where they'd have to come back and tell me shut up. And that was probably the the proudest I was. I'll pause there and see if you have follow ups. So if I'm hearing you right, one of the central um, processes you went through to, you know, kind of learn to navigate your ego was through teaching slash coaching, right? Correct. Yes. And I guess I wonder what it was about that exactly that helped you to navigate your ego vis-a-vis your chosen profession. It was two things. It was one, seeing seeing someone that was exactly like I was cocky or arrogant or awkward at first of seeing sort of yourself in the different periods of your life doing this work that manifested in almost everybody else in some other way, you know, not necessarily that they're just like you, but, Oh, this, this, this lady is, um, you know, she, she, she's shy off stage. She comes life on stage. She's uh, hesitant because she's scared of certain elements, you know? And I think it was seeing that, being able to just watch a performer go from, hell, I've never done this before, or I just got put on a team yesterday. Um, quite frankly, now there are, there are people that I can't turn on the t- television without seeing that I coached or, uh, or, or directed at one point. Um, and I won't say their names because I'm not a name dropper. You should never be a name dropper. You know who told me that? Bobby De Niro. Stephen Colbert. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know who told me that? Stephen Colbert. Edit that in and you'll be fine. You got it. You know, there's that old thing. It's like, the, I'm, this is going to make me sound like a complete asshole. I'm going to say it anyway. Like, the more masterful you get at a craft, the harder it is to explain it to somebody that doesn't know it. Like, if, if you were listening to some improv friends of mine, you'd be like, what in the hell are these guys talking about? And the bits would be flying so fast that you'd be like, I don't understand why they're laughing at what they're laughing at. I understand the words they're saying, but I don't understand the sentence that it's constructed. Right, right. Uh, so there are times where it's like, I know you're desperately trying to get me to, to, to simplify this, and I, it might be difficult for me. Um, so how I do it so far? 
Probably terrible. I'm going to drink water. I, I should be clear. I, I want to make no effort to simplify what you do. I'd like to revel in the complexity of it and to revel in the complexity of you. And it seems like part of the complexity of it is like navigating your own feelings of, you know, self-worth relative to those on stage, right? Like you want to be the one to lob the bombs and to make the audience howl. And I know that you can do that. And you know that you can do that. But so much of what you have to do is set other people up to do that, right? That's right. Look, I'm coming to you from the position of a teacher, right? Like my whole job is about setting people up, you know, to make an incisive, accurate, you know, reflective, critical analysis of a historical or political problem, right? And I have my own ego to grapple with vis-a-vis my work in the classroom, a lot of which is improvised work. So maybe I'm asking you these questions as part of like my effort to write my own self-help manual. Which would be called Reveling in You, by yeah. the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I'm, but I, I really, I, I don't want it to be too navel-gazy, Maybe let me let me frame it this way. How would you describe your particular role on the team? What's like the what's the Eric Lindbergh position on a comedy sports team? Um, so in comedy sports, there's uh, two teams of three, uh, a captain and two players on each team, and there's a referee. Uh, the referee is essentially the ringmaster and the commentator, the play-by-play person. They're all those things. And that is what I love to do more than anything is be a referee at a comedy sports show where I don't have to do the games. I get to talk to the audience. I get to get to know them and sort of be their guide. So I get to perform with the the captains and the other players, but I also get to perform with the audience. And that's a support role. Not really anybody paid a dime to watch the referee, (laughs) but the referee is, is is imperative to the comedy sports show. In terms of being a player in an ensemble where people are, are improvising the scenes, I, I'm very much support now. I used to be a driver. I'm very much support now. Uh, I'm very much, okay, what what do I need to do next to make this person look better? That is what's in my head. Uh, subconsciously, I don't acknowledge that. I'm not thinking that out loud. I'm just, I'm just going with it. So that is my role. And I think that changed very much when I started being a teacher and realized, okay, I'm not, I'm never going to be Jason Sudeikis who was a, a buddy of mine um, that always had this, it, it, like, I'm going to be a big fucking star someday, <laughs> kind of like way about him, right? Yeah. And I just never had that. Yeah, I was on a team with him for many years, and when he talked, I shut up. And then I would just do just enough. You know, we, I think we did some great work together. He wouldn't take my call now if I called him. But nevertheless, <laughs> knowing that when you're with him, you don't have to do anything. If you're with somebody good, it's effortless, no matter what side you're on, whether you're the driver, whether you're the support. So I'm, I'm very much support, hmm. but I'm a great, I'm a great host. I mean, I'm an excellent host and I have no problems not sparing the feelings of, of the players because the audience <laughs> is judging. And if I judge, <laughs> I, and I got in a lot of trouble sometimes like for that, but I'm like, if something horrible, if you do three minutes and it sits there and it has dead silence, it is my obligation to comment on that. Yeah. Right. I have to, as this referee in this show, uh, hopefully not at the expense of the person, but at, at the expense of the work. So it's a tough job. Most people hate it and I love it. And there are many times where I would show up where I'd be supposed to be the player and someone would say, you want a ref? And I'd go, yep. I have my ref jersey on before they even, you know, I, 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 I love it. I could do it forever. May I ask you a couple of questions about being a host or a ref? Yeah, please. First, I'd like to know what you love so much about hosting 
one, I, I love the fact that I get to be part of a show that people are enjoying. That's more than anything else. Yeah. You know, when you learn early on that if somebody says, how funny was Eric Lindbergh get last night? That's great. But how funny was comedy sports last night? That is something that elevates, that just makes me, I'm right now, my hair standing on and saying that. So it's being part of the show that you know is going to affect people, that's going to help uh, people forget their problems, even for 90 minutes, um, or even, you know, when they, when they come up to you and they say, thank you 90 for 90 minutes, God bless you. I laughed. That is like, uh, uh, cocaine to me. Cocaine was another thing. that was a lot like cocaine, to me. but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk. long, long, long time ago. Yeah. But th- that is such a, such a thrill and such a, uh, a, I'm just a junkie for it. So it isn't about me. Are we talking about cocaine now oh, or oh, hosting? Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Uh, wait. Yes, both. Yes, and. Uh, yes, yeah, I, and believe, yes. I believe yes, and is the... <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> yes, and is the... Um, so, yeah. So, that's the first thing I love most about it. The second thing I love most about it is I get to watch. I get to sit back and I get to watch as well for free. You know, I get to, sit and I get to stand up and walk amongst the audience and I can see what they're doing and I can watch the audience and I can watch the players. I can see all these things I love together and take them in and then I get to go on stage and comment about it. Right, right. That is something to me that is just, I mean, it's, I cannot believe I had the chance. I had the opportunity and I hope I do again to, to do that. And, and I'll stop there. It's a great place to stop because you stopped at a perfect place for me to ask, you know, <laughs> I guess, I guess this question, <laughs> how do you prepare to be the optimal host? Um, just to frame it up a little bit more, I suppose, you know, the prerogative of this podcast is really small, right? It's about work. And I'm kind of curious about the work that you do mentally, physically, spiritually, perhaps, to be ready to go up there and give your best as a host. To prepare to be a great host from before you host, you learn 90% of it doing it. You learn the other 10% watching other people do it. And you learn, you know, don't do it like that. Do it like that and watch the audience and see how they react. And it's not to say to steal what they're doing, but to capture their energy, capture their rhythm, you know, and, and as a podcast host, maybe you feel this way, maybe you don't, I, I'd be interested to know. I know it's uh, one of the, one of Howard Stern's things is you, you really have to put yourself in the, in the mind of the audience and say what as a host and say, what does this show need next? If I were sitting there, what would I want to see next? Yeah. I don't know if that happens to you when you're like, if you're imagining someone listening to this and you ask Shana Burns, what would what do they want to hear Shana Burns say next? Having listened to that podcast, I would say you do. Um, do you? I don't know. I'll stop. I'm, no, I mean, I, I mean, I'll try to answer your question, but because it gives me a chance to be sort of you know self-reflective and metacognitive, I just find myself deeply interested in and curious in what people are saying. Like I'm so. I feel like when I'm doing it best, I'm so totally present in listening to what people are saying that I'm not thinking about the audience. I have a really hard time thinking about the time. Like I'm just kind of hanging on every word. And maybe the conceit of this podcast, which I'm you know not afraid to divulge, is that fortunately, you know, there are enough people in the world who are passionate about what they do and they're interested in talking about what they do that I just find myself 
you know, when my empathy levels are up, which I try to keep them up, just like walking along with them. And as we're walking together, no, honestly, I don't think so much about an audience. Perhaps I should. That could make me the next Howard Stern, you know, (laughs) that. And I think I need some like racists and strippers, but like everyone starts somewhere. That's right. True. No, I, I, I get that. I get the sense that part of what makes a great host, and I'm sure what makes you a great host, is both uh, an ability and a willingness to really listen and to really be empathic and to feel what other people are feeling. That has to be true. Tell me why I'm right. You're right because they've paid money to watch something and you don't know them. They don't know who you are. They don't know what they're about to see most of the time. It's not like they showed up to see Norm MacDonald. It's not like they showed up to see somebody whose name got him in the in the door. It's usually the concierge said, I heard this is good, you know? Um, So you it is your obligation to do that. It's part of the job. You have to do that. And you're right because that is what they paid you to do. Um, It's as simple as that. Do you indeed kind of have to love people and love the audience to do it well like you have to really care to to make their night you do as a certain kind of host now there are other comedians i've met in my life where they said i don't give a fuck what the audience thinks you know it's like fuck these people and i never quite got that i i can see from their perspective why they get that way again going back to um Fran Leibowitz, who says, I don't invite the reader in. I'm not interested in them inviting the reader in, but I, I have to do that. For me, it, I must invite them in, or else I will be an absolute awful host, an arrogant asshole that no one wants to listen to. I know that if I go in it for me, I'll be awful. If I go in it for everybody, I, I have a half a chance of being good. To what degree, and perhaps in what ways, do you feel motivated by like comedy as a public service? It absolutely is a public service. And I, I, I would say that, you know, just looking at the John Olivers of the world and the Stephen Colbert's of the world, you realize that if you laugh, like, as you said, as a, as a teacher, if, for me, my favorite teachers were always funny. I learned the most from the ones that were funny and the second most from the ones that, that cared, you know? Comedy is a great way of burning some new idea and creating a different way of looking at something. And yes, to be truly funny, if you take just a, a screwdriver and go and turn it just a, a bit, yeah. it's the most tragic thing in the world. That's brilliant comedy. Um, I'm never going to trash a movie or a comedian because if they're up there, they're getting paid, they have talent, full stop. You know, that, that's that's my philosophy on that. So, I appreciate that. As the president of the Gallagher fan club, <laughs> it's really heartening to me <laughs> that you feel that way. I hate Gallagher, but I love. I'm an, I'm obsessed with Gallagher. I'm obsessed with what he did. I love watching him. I love watching people laugh at him, and I love the fact that Gallagher too was his brother that went out and did his act. Yeah, and they sued each other. I love all that. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I mean, look, you know, Carrot Top has been killing in Vegas for a decade, and people show up, and they they have the night of their lives. They do, and and I will not fault them for that. I mean, God bless them. Yeah, I think Jeff Dunham is the least funny person in the world but he at one point made one year made more money than i think tom cruise and brad pitt combined you know so hey you know what i say to him get her done that's what i say to jeff Dunham. <laughs> um i think is that jeff Dunham? no that's the, the hey, here's your sign oh larry the cable guy yeah now. yeah yeah who is i gotta tell you 
hilarious. No, <laughs> Ron White was the only one of those guys I thought was funny. And, and uh, apparently he's a really nice guy. But anyway, go ahead. Well, I mean, since we're, we're dropping this, were you always sort of uh, a comedy nerd? Like what turned you on and when was it? Was there a moment? Was there a, a voice or a person? Um, I will tell you the two times that I can recall distinctly. And one was the Marx Brothers, watching my dad's Marx Brothers tapes. And that was like when we, we were in middle school, you know. That's, um, that's Richard and Carl? That's Richard and Carl. I think Carl was the one that yeah. couldn't talk. Um, and Richard was uh, was the one that wasn't all that funny. Yeah, um, yeah no, but the Marx Brothers. And then, um, and then I – so the time where I realized – this might be a false memory as all memories are, but the time I realized that I, I might be able to make my money as, as some sort of performer or actor was Superman two, because I remember thinking, well, I'll never be Christopher Reeve, but maybe I could be Gene Hackman. Yeah. You know, like I, I remember distinctly sitting there as a, as a, as a, as a young person and thinking that. So you were 10, that, that's when you were, you know, maybe eight or 10 years old. Yeah. I, I always, I always knew I couldn't do anything else. I mean, I didn't, I, there was no way I was going to be a banker uh, or a, or a salesperson or anything. Yeah. It never even occurred to me. I was never good at anything else other than either making people laugh or reading things aloud. You know, that was it. If this is a total non-starter, it's going to fall off the record, but did Harry Anderson influence you in any substantial way? Yes. Absolutely. I love Night Court. Go back and watch Night Court. It's not all that great. But I, I was obsessed with Harry Anderson's uh, stage act. And I had a, a VHS copy of it. I think it was like 43 minutes long. And I knew it backwards and forwards. Holy shit. <laughs> I promise you, as a mentalist, no, I I did not know that. But I had this sense about you. Yeah. Harry Anderson somehow mattered to you. Yeah. Um, quick snap. Who's sort of like your stand-up Mount Rushmore? Norm MacDonald. I don't know if these guys count, but I'll say Brooks and Reinery because they did it in front of a, of a live audience when they did the 2,000-year-old man. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah, it's the best. I'm actually, uh, Chappelle is a genius. I mean, I can watch him even when I disagree completely with him. I, I love everything he does. He's, he's, I think he's the best there is uh, by far. Uh, what he does is astonishing. And then I was also a fan of Rodney Dangerfield, but not on stage, on the couch next to Johnny Carson. Oh, him and Rickles. Well, Rickles, too. I, yeah, talk, just Rickles, talk about like yeah. who's on the couch next to Carson. It's un- unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Yep, unbelievable. Still, watch him now. They still hold up. I have to say that I'm kind of like hurting my shoulder, patting myself on the back for pulling the Harry Anderson thing out of, out of my hat. But it brings me to this curiosity I have about your career vis-a-vis mentalism. I... I'm really interested in the whole mentalism thing. It's really like a multidisciplinary endeavor. I'm endlessly fascinated with it. You know, like without spilling your secret sauce, I would love it if you could just talk about your work as a as a comedic mentalist. Like what goes in to preparing and to executing that particular sleight of hand. Two things, I think. One, a lot of reading and studying and understanding the the stuff, which is, by the way, and I'll just go on record, it's all 100% bullshit. Uh, there are no psychics. There are no mind readers. Not one never was. That's my opinion, and I'm pretty sure I'm objectively correct. Yeah. That said, I've convinced people that I can read their mind, and I've also convinced people that I've said I can read their mind and absolutely not done so because I bombed harder doing that than I bombed doing anything. And I've done it multiple times, 
But what goes into it is first different than magic in that with magic, you can make a coin vanish in front of a mirror until you fool yourself, right? Then you're ready to go perform for somebody else. With mentalism, you have to have people to practice on. And they cannot be your wife. They cannot be your mother. They cannot be somebody that knows you because the shit will not work. They will say, why am I doing this? Why are you having me do it this way? What it has to be is strangers. And you have to have the absolute goal to say, I'm going to try this no matter how scared I am, no matter how terrified I am, and hope that it works because I've never done it before for anybody. I've only read it about it. I've practiced it in my mind. I've practiced it out loud. But when now I actually have to do it to a person. Uh, so you need people's minds to read. Otherwise, you know, you can read your own mind at home. <laughs> you have to decide what sort of character you want to be. Why do you, what powers are you ex- exhibiting? And that's the thing that I never quite was good at because I, I hate the ones that are like, I'm communing with the dead and I can really do this. And damn it, if this just isn't just possible. Yeah. I always liked the Harry Andersons, you know, who, who you knew was just full of shit. And even when he did little mind reading things, he didn't do too many, but he did do some. You know, there was there was this element of I'm not real sure how this is working. It's just something that kind of works. I don't quite get it. It just happens. We'll see if it works. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it does. Sometimes uh, we'll see what happens. Let's try it. That's kind of my persona. Yeah. And I found that it that it worked quite well for a while. So so uh, <laughs> this is the strangest thing. So it's like I was I started really good at it. So my first show, I just did at Comedy Sports, and I said, can I have the theater for an hour after 8 o'clock Thursday show? And the show was sold out, the 8 o'clock, and I was the ref. And I said, if anyone wants to stick around, you're welcome to. I'm going to try this stuff. I don't know if it'll work. You're absolutely welcome to. So to be fair, it was about half an audience that had just seen me kill a Comedy Sports show, and about half ensemble members, friends, and also foes who wanted to see me fall on my ass. Yeah. The place was completely sold out, right? right. It was my first show I've rehearsed everything. Everything's where it's supposed to be. I go out there immediately. I'm at, because I didn't look at the audience before I went out. I was shocked how many people there were. I figured it'd be seven people out there. And I was shocked that how many people stuck around because there was like a 45 minutes between and they had to clear the theater and they had to come back. So I, I, I'm up there I, I, and I'm fumbling and bumbling through my first effect. I, I, I do the big reveal and I get a standing ovation from everybody. Huh. And I'm like, oh my, oh my God, I still have 45 minutes left. That was my thought. <laughs> not, that, not that this worked. Not that this was great. That, oh my God, I still have 45 minutes left. I, I've already, I, I've, I've done this all wrong. I've, I should have had this at the closer and this should be at the beginning. And now they're going to hate this. And I'm going through my mind while they're like applauding and screaming. The rest of the show destroyed. And then for the next six, seven, eight shows, they destroyed. And then this place called the Chicago Magic Lounge had just opened. Uh, I performed there and it destroyed. And then one of the, the owners of a burlesque show said, hey, I'm doing this thing. And it's a private party up in the athletic club in Chicago. Do you want to come and do some mind reading? I, didn't, I thought it was going to be a sex party. I didn't know what a burlesque show was. <laughs> and I go there and, and I'm in the bathroom. I do one effect for about 15 like ultra rich motherfuckers, right? In between women taking their clothes off. Right. With the pasties, it's very artistic. And I go because I love burlesque dancers more than I love just about anything else. Uh, and it killed. So now I was now doing burlesque shows where I'm coming out doing 10 minutes in between these amazingly talented women who are essentially removing their clothing and, and dancing and gyrating. And it's killing. And then all of a sudden I got a run at the Chicago Magic Lounge and I started to suck. And each subsequent show started to suck. And I did shows where I would do 45 minutes with seven effects. They would all fail, literally fail. Be like, I'm going to pull a rabbit out of my hat. There's no rabbit, right? 
I'm going to make this a woman saw in half. She doesn't saw in half. One right after the next. Yeah. <laughs> All failed. I went, good night, and walked off the stage to dead silent. That happened as, soon, as early as like 2015. It's not that long ago. Did you get the yips or something? Uh, yeah, I got the yips. I started to think I was better than I was. All this stuff that I that I should have known from improvisation for 20 years, I all of a sudden forgot over the course of about a year and a half doing mentalism and thought, okay, I've done 100 shows. I'm great. I'm the greatest thing there ever was, right? So yeah, I got the yips and I started to get fancier and fancier. I started to say, well, they're not paying me enough money, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and just try something new. So if you ever see something that's truly like, I, don't, I have no idea how that, there's no possible way that could happen. I was fooling other mentalists because I was doing things that were uh, risky, right? That could have failed, but didn't. Things that were, that had about a 50-50 chance of working. And if they did, you look like you can really do it. And if they don't, you look like an asshole. And I was doing too much of that. And I was putting too many more experimental things into the show uh, because you only paid me 60 bucks and I got to park and I got to do this. And by the time I get them, I'm down 70 bucks. Right, but, right, you right. Know, that's kind <laughs> of my, and you know, I make, I make X amount of money a day doing this other job. I'm going to like the hell. So I, I became an arrogant prick and I deservedly so was fired from the Chicago magic lounge. And then um, just as I was starting to get my sea legs again at it, you know, our pandemic hit. So we'll see what happens. I have not had anything or even attempted it in 10 months. So I imagine I'm, uh, I have to relearn everything. Um, I hope you don't mind my asking, but uh, does it hurt to think that um, that facet of your career is, is behind you? Does it seem like that might be something that's over? How do you feel about it? It, it, it doesn't hurt isn't the right word. And I, I, my gut of guts tells me it is over. The burlesque place that I performed at where I owned the stage, even at my absolute worst, closed. and actually closed before this pandemic. Other places, I sort of have this reputation as being shitty at it now, which is fine. I, I used to begin, I used to begin every show well before I was bad by saying every magician in this, in this town thinks what I do is a total disgrace. Um, because it was true. Yeah. Because they did. Even though at my best, I could run circles around them. Yes, it does. But the hurt isn't the right word because I got to do it. And and that and not to use the most weathered phrase of all, but don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Right? Yeah. So that's how I feel. And there are, and I, I mean, might get a little welled up thinking, there are moments that I know that there are times that I've done something as a, as a mentalist, a comedy mentalist that people will never forget that they will speak about years later. I know that to be true. And they walked away feeling, and a, a, a couple said this to me once. They said, and they were an older couple, probably, I don't know, maybe a little older than us. And they said, it made me feel like a kid again. Yeah. And, and I mean, I was like, I, I wet buckets. I wet buckets backstage. And that is something that, you know, it's like Santa came. I know you don't get that uh, reference. Uh, but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you know, I will... Um, happily confess to you that I found myself getting um, a little bit emotional when I was thinking about how this interview might go. And for one particular, and I will concede perhaps rather strange reason, because I was thinking about how so much of what you do is like one of those, you know, Buddhist monk mandalas, right? You know, those sand sculptures that they spend forever trying to make and it's all of it's like ornate detail and they just sit there and they make these amazing things and they just you know they just blow it off into the wind and then it's just it's this symbolic sentiment about impermanence 
And it seems to me like there's something so beautiful about that. And it's something so beautiful about what you do as a, as a comedian, as an improviser, a mentalist. You're just trying to give them that moment. Interesting you should say that, because that used to be the thing I resented most about improvisation. It is now the thing that I am... You, you described it exactly with the Buddhist monk. I feel that way because you begin shows by saying this has never happened before. It will never happen again. It is just for you. Now, if you sit there and it's awful, <laughs> who cares? But if you sit there and have this amazingly funny experience and you know it's never happened before and it's never going to happen again, it's just for you. Oh. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? I can't imagine anything more beautiful than that uh, in terms of a, a, of a popular culture, popular art experience. What made you pivot from someone who found that to be a detestable problem of the form to someone who's come to celebrate the impermanence of it? Age, understanding. I mean, really, I wish I had an answer other than I got older and I saw how the world worked. I mean, that's it. You know, it's like, holy shit, no one's ever going to see it. When you're 22 years old and you think you just killed, no one is ever going to see it. When you describe it to someone, it's not as funny. And when somebody else describes it. It, it's 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 heartbreaking you know it's like i did all that work and it wasn't even a camera and i even filming it and then you get older and you realize that there's so such little uh, so 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 limited collective experiences that are that powerful and you just don't see that when you're when you're a kid or when you're in your 20s and and yeah. now i know that my days of doing 14 shows a week are long gone my days numbered to doing two shows a week to doing one shows a week and might very well be no shows a week. So, so I have no other choice other than to know that these things that I once did that will never happen again at their best were of benefit to my fellow human. And otherwise I think I would wallow in depression uh, and, and, and God only knows what, what route I would go down. I don't know if that's uh, the answer you, you, you wanted, but uh, sorry, Smoopy, it's the one you got. No, man, I, I totally think you've learned to appreciate effectively what is the impermanence of it. And I want to kind of pivot from that to ask you about your career in this, which is to say, it's a hard one to sustain. I think it's awesome. And I want to commend you that you've been at it for two decades. But the hours are rough. There's a whole lot of like, you know, young, smart people coming up in the ranks and they've been watching it on YouTube and they've had all the training in the world. And it's basically become like an academic discipline at this point. Mm -hmm. And you have to, you know, maintain your stake in the game while creating space for the young bloods. How are you feeling about all that? Just terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, to, to be honest, yeah. I mean, you know right away if you're if you're smart enough that the wolf is always at the door and that you always have to find the next thing. And even while you're working on something that is incredibly difficult or incredibly has incredible long hours, you know that you have to find your next job immediately afterwards. Sometimes you're doing two or three at once. Now, now, now what I do primarily is a creative director for corporate events. I'm working with a lot of um, production companies and the end clients from pharmaceutical companies to construction companies. And I work with their speakers and I work with their presenters to make their presentations, which some very often do involve a level of improvisational talent that is brought on board to help. That is now something that I have been able to 
uh, corporatize. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not what I wanted to do. I do enjoy it very, very much, but it's a, it's a skill set that not many people have. And I, and I was forced to find it and I was lucky. I happened into it. Very, very thankful. I, I, I happened into it, um, at, at an early age. And so what was allowing me to do these shows I was telling you about where I was doing them for free was that I could go make $2,000 being flown to Vegas, the Mandalay Bay to do eight minutes on stage, you know, eight minutes a day for four days in a national sales conference. And so I was lucky in that, in that regard, but it's, it's still a grind and it's the wolf is still at the door, but at least I, I feel like if tomorrow it all went away, I'm, I'm smart enough and good enough that I, I'd be able to do something. I just don't know what. And I think being good at improvisation, you know, it's a, <laughs> David Mamet used to be a hero, but a bit of a kook now. He, sa- he talks about the careers that reward improvisation. They are movie director, writer, performer, and criminal. Like those, <laughs> like, those, like, like, the, like those are it, you yeah. know? And, and so, so I think I, so I've been able to, to use movie director, writer, performer, and put it into these national sales conferences, these product launches, these trade shows that desperately needed something other than somebody reading from a teleprompter for 45 minutes. And that has really, really helped. It, it's helped me. It's helped me be a better person. It's helped me be a better husband. It's helped me be a better, uh, maybe not a healthier person in terms of my eating and, uh, you know, got addicted to nicotine again, but I don't drink anymore. I don't do drugs anymore. I do, I do do the legalized marijuana, but I don't, you know, there's certain things that I just don't do it that I know are bad for me and that I know will lead to nothing. And it's because of this work and because of the people I met in this work that made me, that were more life affirming, more, uh, there's a point to you know, not, uh, you know, staying up all night doing great improv and then getting drunk and hoping someone will go home with you. You know, that's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. that is a, that is a life I lived longer than I should have by a number of years. And so it's, it's taking years off my life, I'm sure. But now I'm, I'm happier than I am for, for it. Look, you got to hustle. You're a, you're a fucking hustler, man. Like that's the nature of what you have to do to, to make your nut you know, you've got to hustle. You got to go from gig to gig. The hours are ridiculous. You got to work with people who are also, you know, keeping strange hours. And, mm-hmm. you know, to some degree, because of that, you you ended up engaged in some patterns of, you know, self-medicating behavior, which is, you know, perfectly understandable. It's a hard life you carved out. You've succeeded, right? But it's still hard. And I'm happy to hear that you've turned the corner on some of the behavioral patterns that weren't getting you anywhere. So kudos to you on that. But I got to ask you this, and I know that you said that you don't necessarily like love the corporate gigs, but you got to avoid the wolf at the door. So I don't want to talk about it too much, but I do want to know like what it's like to do your work, you know, doing improv and doing mentalism for, you know, you mentioned like pharmaceutical salespeople or like at a construction um, firm. Like, what's that gig like? Well, it isn't like any other job. And that's the thing that I think it's hard to explain. And I don't talk about it because it bores me, frankly. But um, <laughs> happy, uh, happy to have you on the podcast. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it's like, 
I mean, it literally is. Imagine you have a job where every three months everything changes. All the all the all the SOPs change. All the faces and names change. Your bosses change. Uh, your people you're working they're working for you. The people that are working with you. The people you're collaborating with. They all change, or, or for every three months or so. Yet the end result is to get a communication or a message or a story, which is essentially what any meeting is, is a story. You know, you, you, any presentation is a story, is getting that story from the mouth of the people that want to tell it to the people that need to hear it in a way that it's going to stick. And in a way that they're going to leave and say, okay, I, I, I got something out of this and I need to go forward in my career and these, these things will help me. And I mean, I could sit here for 10 hours and, and talk about all the different ways you could do that. But that's what it's like. It's unlike anything else, and it's it's a constant unlearning and then relearning. Hmm. I both love it and resent it for that reason, <laughs> and I'm thankful for this because there are days where I can say, oh, I'm completely booked and sleep all day because I need to, right? And then the next day, I'm working 12 hours. You make your own schedule in, in a way, but you also are on constant conference calls, constantly writing something you might write, say, a script for a sketch that is going to be presented at a national sales meeting to show the benefits of a new product, right? Whatever the case may be. And it passes through a hundred hands before it gets to somebody that you, and you've spent 80 hours on it and they go, nope. And that's it. Hmm. Wipe away, back to the beginning, start over. It doesn't matter. You get paid for all the time up to it. So you can't complain, but there's still that moment of this person has no idea why this is, will work, how this will work, that we know this will work, that's been proven to work. And they said no because they have a C in front of their title. They are right. End of story, right? That's a, ha- that's a hard thing to navigate. But when it works, it, there's nothing like it. And you, you actually, again, just like watching a team I coach perform, you leave, you get back on the plane, and you go, and you feel like you've done something. Whether it's a corporate gig or, you know, working out at one of the Chicago comedy clubs or improv clubs, I imagine it to be an exhausting enterprise. There's a whole lot of hurry up and wait. You know, there's a whole lot that seems out of your control. And sometimes you just got to eat shit. Yes. And you never know if it's your night to eat shit. Yes. Because the audience has got a, a bee in their collective bonnet. It just sounds, if I could just be blunt, fucking exhausting. It, it, is it? I guess this is my question. Is it? <laughs> yes, but it's also, there's good exhaustion, there's bad exhaustion. And it, and it walks the line of those very well. Um, but I don't mind good exhaustion. I love good exhaustion. It's those. It's it's that. Uh, it's that. Oh my god! I spent all day and I've accomplished nothing, or I've been here all night and I and I got on stage and died. Exhaustion that I hate. The good exhaustion I'm cool with. I, I could be exhausted all day long. I felt good about it, you know. Yeah. And I'm frequently exhausted. I'm exhausted now, frankly. You can probably see by the bags under my eyes. But um, uh, that's that cocaine. It's hard to. It's hard to wake up for these early morning calls. Dan, I got to a point where cocaine made me tired and hungry. At that point, I was like, I think I'm done. I think it's time to <laughs> see. I think I'm done. Um, but, but no, you're cocaine right. Cocaine made you hungry. Yeah, I know. I know. Isn't that crazy? I think you're the first. Um, some, someone roasted me once, and uh, they were like, I've never seen anybody gain any weight on cocaine. <laughs> and then he goes, he goes, he goes, you guys want to get a pizza? <laughs> 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 well, you're in good company, you Chicago greats. You know, you Belushi, Farley, and you. You're the you're the three to yeah, right. gain weight <laughs> as fucking snow throwers. That's right. Um, but I mean, I, now just just mentioning it 
makes the back of my throat like makes me want to vomit. So I think that's a good thing. Um, yeah, it is exhausting, but I don't I don't mind it. I mean, what job isn't exhausting? You're probably exhausted. To me, teaching kids history all day sounds exhausting. I mean, I guess it's just it's not exhausting if you if you love it. Well, right? I guess that was what I was in a way trying to set up or to create some space for. Like, despite the overwhelming nature of it, do you still get the buzz? You know, because when I leave a classroom, when all things are humming along and the cylinders are firing, that's about as good as I can feel. Is the same true for you? Do you still get the buzz from it? Are yes. you still in love with comedy? I am. And I will tell you a quick story here about the last time I did mentalism that worked. And what it was was for a friend of mine, they wanted to have a, a surprise wedding. So they told hundreds of people it was, and it was, uh, the guy's 50th birthday. And he was a big fan of mine, uh, my mentalism show. And I was going to be the officiant. So the thing was, the, the show would end with him coming up and then me marrying them. And so I had to do an effect that not only blew their minds, but then also would then marry them. I honestly don't think I'll ever be better at any task. I don't think I'll ever have done anything better than I did that day. That buzz, I was, I was jacked for weeks. For weeks. So, yeah, um, I do still get that buzz. What did you do? I need to know. I, I did I did the best of my show, and then I had um, – I'm going to hand out some markers, and I just want you to write down some random words, okay? Uh, you write down a word, you write down a word, you write down a word, and I wrote down the words as well. Uh, so the red marker said borrowed. The uh, uh, old marker said new. Then there was uh, the blue marker said blue. So something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. So the the four words were old, new, borrowed, blue. So I literally got four people to think of those words that didn't know they were going to think of them. And there was a good chance it wasn't going to work because I didn't care. Because I said, if it doesn't work, I'm going to marry him at the end. No one's going to give a shit. They're not going to remember. Right? <laughs> right? So, uh, but... But it did work, and I was old. And I mean, my hair was standing out. And the, the, the guy was—he was, he was bawling. He was the guy was about to get married, and they came up, and and they had this beautiful ceremony. They gave these beautiful vows, and, and of course, at that point, everybody forgot everything I did, and I was fine with that. I was absolutely fine. They were just happy they got married. No, oh, yeah, you were good. But then I got all these emails and texts afterwards that were like, "We we just we still just can't believe it." That was. Yeah, I mean, it was a, one in a, I, honestly, I don't know what the chances are in the billions that that worked the way it did, but it did. And how did you do it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, next question. <laughs> I don't want you to reveal secrets or strategies because I want to respect the sanctity of it. I have a sense of what you do, and it really is astounding. Again, without giving up any sacred secrets, what's the work of preparing all of this? It's learning the secrets, and then it's hiding the methods, and they're all methods, inside of other methods. That's where I was at my best, where I could say I can combine these two things, which together don't really work. And I know this is not probably going to make a lot of sense without getting into specifics, but I'll try it anyway. And therefore... Um, Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll just give this as an example. Let's say you write down the word, uh, a word. You write it down, you put it in your pocket, I never touch it, I never go near the pen, I never do anything, right? Then I reveal that word. The magic lies in for making you and everyone else forget you ever wrote it down. Now, somehow, some way, I must have discovered what you wrote down, right? There's the only, that's the only answer, right? You wrote it down, I somehow must have seen it. 
Did I? I don't know. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. Even if you were in another room, even if I was blindfolded, even whatever the case may be. But if I can make everybody forget, including you, that you ever wrote it down, you literally just were thinking of it. That is how you make it happen. That's about as as much as I'm comfortable as sharing. I probably shared too much, but there you go. It sounds like it's a really empowering thing in a way that you do, both with concern to the mentalism and the improv and comedy sports. It sounds like it really gives you voice and agency. Does it feel great to be doing it? Does it feel like you're driving a Ferrari? It feels like I'm driving a Mazda CX-5. But yes, it does. Oh, the five I, I mean, model. It, it, <laughs> yes, um, it, it does. It, 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 I'd say that's an accurate description. All right. It does. Yes. Cool, man. Yes. Well, listen, I'm I'm glad it still feels good, and I know that it's you know particularly in these times, it's got to be humbling if not horrible. But these times will will pass, and I know you'll be back in the mix in no time at all. But I'm really thrilled that you're able to do what you love to do and you've been able to make your bona fide career out of it and that you're able to bring so much joy to so many people. And so I want to begin to drive this train into this station here by asking you to tell me a story of a professional failure and one of a professional triumph. And if we could start with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph, that would be fantastic. Can you tell me a story or two, Eric? As for a failure, recently, not too recently, but recently enough, they asked me to give the money back for a mentalism thing I did uh, because it, nothing it worked. It was one I was just off. I was off for a bunch of reasons. Some personal I won't go into. Some just because I hadn't prepared well enough. And I missed mean, a few years back, uh, and I gave them the money back. And I said, "Here you go." And it was a lot of money, and I needed it, and I didn't, and I had to give it back. Uh, I, I just thought I was ashamed. I was absolutely ashamed, and. I don't want to go too much into it, but I mean, I was, it was a big high profile event and the rehearsal had killed. I had to audition to get it, all of these things. And a perfect storm of events made me look like they pulled somebody off the street who had never been on stage before, uh, (laughs) was hosting their, their event. Yeah. I was, I mean, it was awful. If I, if I, if I wasn't married and I was, it happened 20, 10 years ago, I don't know where I would have done. I honestly don't. Right. Is it hard to recover when it goes cattywampus like that? It is. It is hard to recover, but it's also specifically hard to recover when, when money and in some in this particular case, other people's money were also involved. So it is hard to recover. But then, after about a week of sulking, I went, "Well, I I have to move on now." I, you know, it, it's very hard to recover. Yeah. But you have to, or you have to go do something else. So that's that's it. Yeah. All right. I have a story of success for you. All right. It's, uh, it's a good one, I hope. I made a bucket list one time. And my bucket list, I sat down, I wrote down the bucket list, and I wrote one thing on it. And then I said, ah, this is stupid. I'm not going not gonna, to um, ever do a bucket list. And on that bucket list was play a cop on television. And I got to play a cop on television. Yeah? Chicago PD. And Chicago PD, there's, you know, there's three shows that shoot here, or, or did shoot here. They'll, they'll shoot again. My personal opinion of what they may be, uh, how good they may be, is irrelevant. But they are Chicago Med, Chicago Fire, and Chicago PD. And much like, I just take the piss out of myself a little before I'll give you a success story. <laughs> much like Law and Order and all those Law and Orders, if you were an actor with a pulse in New York, eventually you would end up on Law and Order. 
right? I mean, you would have to. There would be no other way. Eventually, they'd run out of people. Right. Um, so I went in about 14 different times for different auditions for, and it was always fire and med. And I always wanted to be on PD. I was like, I don't want fire. I don't want med. I don't want to be a fireman. I don't want to be a victim of a thing. I don't want to be somebody that's like, ah, and they have to you know, bring me back to life. I want to be a cop. Just, I want to be a cop. Call, I would get called back. I would get called back. I would get called back. And then, so finally I get the, I get the notice from my agent that it was a Chicago PD property crime sergeant. And the first thing I went was sergeant. All my friends on Chicago PD have never been a sergeant. They've never rose to the rank of sergeant. <laughs> I'm going to get, you know, uh, I'm like pro- property crime sergeant. All right. So there's different audition types, but the people that put those Chicago PD auditions together, they only bring in six or seven people for every role. There might be times where there'd be 800 people for a role on different shows, but they know what they're doing. So I show up and there's one of the <laughs> one of the guy there. And I'm like, this is strange. And he looked nothing like me, nothing like me, not the same skin color, not the same body type, nothing like me. And I walked in and the, uh, and for the first time ever, a woman who I was pretty sure I hate, hated me, the casting director high-fived me as I walked in, right? So I go in and, and this was, this was a, a callback, I should add. And so I'd already done it once. And then, so I go in, I, I have it memorized. She goes, okay, hits the button. I do it once. I fuck it up. I say the wrong words. <laughs> He turns off the thing and goes, that's great. And I'm like, uh, okay, well, all right. And I walk out and she brings the other guy in and I walk out and I'm in the car. I'm about three blocks away. My agent calls me. You got it. So whatever they had already decided that it was going to be me. And so I'm going to be on the set of a, of a major television show. And I don't know if you've ever been on one. Tremendous amounts of money are wasted. Uh, I got there. <laughs> I had a trailer. They drove me from the trailer to the set, I was in the with Brian Garrity. I don't know if you're a Boardwalk Empire fan, yeah. Uh, but Brian Garrity was one of my favorite characters on that. And I was like, "Holy fucking shit!" He was right in the van. He's like, "Hi, I'm Brian." I'm like, "Hi, I'm right." You and I was out loud. It's like Eric. Very nice to meet. It was raining out. It was the night before Thanksgiving. It was raining out. They were way behind, so I I was late to the set. You know, they were late getting me to the set. Uh, someone held an umbrella over my head as I walked from the from the van to the set. I mean, it was like, what is happening? Who do they think I am? I go down into this labyrinth where they'd set up this little scene that they were going to do. And um, we did it in three takes. I was on the set for 45 minutes. And if I told you half the money I made on that, you you call me a liar. because It's a network show and you get residuals and it's on every minute of every day somewhere. And you look at it. I went back and looked at it. And I realized I didn't say a single line correctly. I said every <laughs> line I said was not as written. They were all totally different. And then at the end, Everybody said, that was, you know, so natural. You're so natural. So natural. And I'm thinking, aren't you supposed to be natural? Like, is that the whole point of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I and I, it was only after the fact I realized that on, on occasion, Chicago PD employs actual police officers to be police officers. And I think they all thought I was a cop. Huh. Yeah. And, and so nobody talked to me on the set at all. Nobody, except for the, um, the creative consultant who was an actual Chicago cop. And he comes up to me and goes, you on the job? And I thought he meant the job, you know, like, yeah, I'm on this job. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I was at, uh, yeah, I want the job. And he goes, where, where? And I go, well, here. So I was like, I didn't know what he meant. He meant, was I a cop? And, I, and he goes, are you fucking with me? You're fucking, this guy's fucking with me already. I love him. He's fucking with me already. So he kind of is the only guy that gave me direct say, here's how you can play this. You can play it as somebody who's been, uh, who's excited to be here. They've made this big bust and there's all this stolen property. And, or you can play it as somebody who, and he goes through all these scenarios and he says, or you can just be pissed off. You're here all night. 
Ah. And I went, okay, I'll do that one. Yeah. That's the one I can, that, that, that one I can nail. And so I did it in three takes and then I was so sad when it was over and I was convinced I was going to be cut out of it. But even though I realized my words sent the B plot off, you know, of that particular episode. So there was no way they could cut me out of it. But in my mind, so many people had been, cut. I mean, I heard stories of people. It's like they drove up and I rolled out of the car and I pulled my gun and I fired and I got shot and I fell backwards and a squib went off and they're cut out of the show. You know, <laughs> so, so I was absolutely convinced that I was going to be cut out of it. But I guess they got one good enough to use and the thing's still in there. And as long as NBC and Amazon Prime have that, uh, have that deal, it will be there. And that is my success story. If there were ever a story of triumph told on the Studs podcast, it is that story precisely. <laughs> Eric Lindbergh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. It's, this was so much fun, man. I had so much fun. Dude, did you, you remember the movie The Green Mile? Oh, yeah. Yep. So I just, it was just on the other day. I had this thought. You remember like Michael Clark Duncan, right? Like he's like, you know, this prisoner. And it's like, he kind of like wears the weight of the world on his shoulder. And then like when all of the pain becomes too much, it's like he vomits a nest of like bumblebees, right? And like, (laughs) and sometimes I feel like that's the role that comedians play in our society. I was so excited to get you on the podcast because I have such a reverence for the role that the comedian plays, particularly in contemporary culture. I really feel like there's something fundamentally necessary to what you do, particularly in this age of anxiety and in our, you know, as we careen collectively from crisis to crisis. I think that the comedian is so important. And I really honor what you do. And I know that, or at least I have the sense that as a comedian, you kind of got to play the role that Michael Duncan plays where, you know, you just got to eat shit a bunch of the time and it's hard on you. But thanks for doing it, man. Thanks for falling on all the swords and getting back up on your feet to, to do it again. It can't be easy. But I'm happy to hear that you're still having fun doing it. And shit, man, that you're still doing it after all these years. I'm super, super happy for you, man. And I'm really grateful that you made the time for this podcast. And I am grateful for you and for you asking me. And uh, I I think this is a great thing you got going here, man. So please keep doing what you're doing. And I promise I'll keep listening. Thanks, buddy. Hey, we did it. We did it. (laughs) Well, how about that? That there, my friends, is my best effort to keep up with the wit and the charm of Eric Lindbergh. He's a special guy. I always liked Eric. And I really like learning about what he does. He's good people, and he makes me smile. And I hope he made you smile, too. All right, so subscribe Leave a review, follow the podcast wherever you're listening to it. And if you dig what you hear, do me a favor, just tell a pal or two about what's going on over here. And if studs mean something to you and you got the means to share a little bit, like 50 cents an episode or something like that, consider going over to the Patreon page. Or don't. It doesn't matter. Just enjoy the show. Ooh. You're really going to enjoy next week. If you like this episode, you're definitely going to like next week's.
But until then, please take care of yourselves. Be kind yourselves. Give yourself some love. And if you don't have it in you to give yourself some love, shoot me a message. Get in touch. I got plenty of love to give. All right, I'll catch you next week.